You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. John chapter 7. We'll read together the first two verses, and then we'll open in prayer. John chapter 7. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. Let's go to the Lord and ask his blessing upon our time and our study. Our Father, we thank you that you are faithful, and because you never change, you are always faithful to to yourself, to your nature, and to your word. And because of that, you are always faithful to do what you have promised to do. You are a God who fulfills your promises and your blessings to those who are yours. And we thank you that we can rest in that confidence that you are who you are and in your word and its truthfulness. And so we desire and ask that as we study your word this morning, you would keep our minds and hearts alert to your word. Help us to understand the things which are difficult to understand. And we pray that you would be glorified through our time. Teach us now, we pray, O Spirit of God, for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ and his glory. Amen. When I was in um, Bible college, we had a whole semester class. It was in our first year on the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses. Penta meaning five and tuk. I don't know what tuk means. It must mean books because it would only make sense, five books. In Canada, a tuk is a stocking cap. And so every time we talked about a Pentateuch, I just envisioned five stocking caps, but it's, it refers to the five, it refers to the first five books, my family is laughing, of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, a whole semester. And it was not our favorite class because, at least it wasn't my favorite class. As a brand new believer, I didn't have really any understanding of the Old Testament Jewish structure or the Jewish feasts or the festivals or anything that went, anything that was Jewish. I didn't understand. I wasn't a Jew. I didn't grow up as a Jew. I didn't understand Jewish anything. And so the Pentateuch was a, it was a foreign language and culture to me entirely. So being not one of our favorite classes, I, we used to refer to it as Tendapuke. That was our nickname for that class. But as a, as a, as a requirement for graduating and as a requirement for passing the class, we had to memorize all of the feasts, all of the festivals, and all of the sacrifices of the Pentateuch. And not only memorize them, but memorize their significance and memorize the different features that were, or the things that were part of the features of that feast or festival or sacrifice. And uh, so I had committed all of that to memory in Bible college. Today, it is all gone. Not all of it. Some of it still clings to the walls of my memory. But for the most part, everything I memorized was gone. And for the last number of years, in fact, since the book of Acts, since we were preaching through the book of Acts, I have wanted to go back and study the feasts and the sacrifices all over again and just familiarize myself now that I have a more of an understanding of Scripture and God's redemptive plan. I wanted to kind of get into the feasts and festivals and sacrifices a bit deeper. And I've actually thought it would be a fun thing to do for adult Sunday school class. I'm not sure if it would be fun for people listening, but it would be fun for me because it's of interest to me now. And so I've thought about doing that. And John, the Gospel of John, has afforded me the opportunity to dive in and look at some of the feasts because, as I mentioned last week, John's Gospel is, for the most part, structured around feasts. He mentions a feast, and that feast seems to add color to the background of a 
a, di- a discourse or a miracle or an interchange between he and the religious leaders of the nation of Israel, if you just keep in mind that the book of the Gospel of John really mentions a feast and then there's a whole bunch of teaching and conflict and stuff attached to that feast. And then he moves on and he mentions another feast. And John is, I believe, the only Gospel writer that mentions all four of the Passovers in the life of the Lord Jesus. He mentions a Passover back in chapter 2, verse 13, before Jesus cleansed the temple. He went to Jerusalem, and that was to celebrate a Passover. It was at the Passover that he cleansed the temple. John mentions again, I think, in John chapter 5, verse 1, which is called the unnamed feast, that the feast mentioned in 5, verse 1 was the second Passover, and I argued for that in John chapter 5. Then John mentions a third Passover in John chapter 6, verse 4, which sort of sets the stage for the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on water and the bread of life discourse. Then John mentions another Passover in John chapter 11, verse 55, which is the last Passover that John mentions. It's also the last Passover in the life of the Lord Jesus. And that took place, that Passover came right on the heels of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. So those are the four Passovers in the Gospel of John. Then there are two other feasts mentioned in John. In John chapter 10, verse 22, he mentions the Feast of Dedication, which is Hanukkah. And there's a a whole discourse and a bunch of events that sort of surround that feast. And then we come to John chapter 7, verse 2, where John mentions the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths takes place exactly halfway between Passovers. So with the mention of this Feast of Booths in John chapter 7, verse 2, we know that we are six months after the Passover mentioned in 6, verse 4. And we are six months before the final Passover of the Lord Jesus' life. So though we are late, though we are early in John's Gospel, still only chapter 7, we are late in the life of the Lord Jesus, only six months before His crucifixion and His final Passover. So the Feast of Booths takes place six months after John chapter 6, and six months before the final week of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this Feast of Booths, this mention of the Feast of Booths, not only gives us sort of a chronological development or a chronological point to sort of hang these events on, but it also adds color to everything that we're going to read in John chapter 7, John chapter 8, John chapter 9, and half of John chapter 10. So those three and a half chapters actually are colored and explained by this reference to the Feast of Booths. So there is a lot that happens. You may be here today and you're asking yourself the same thing I asked myself when I took Pentateuch. Why do I need to know this stuff? I'm not a Jew. I haven't celebrated the Feast of Booths. I'm not celebrating the Feast of Booths. I don't ever plan on celebrating the Feast of Booths. So what does the institution of a feast some thousands of years ago have to do with me and application of my life and my understanding? Well, the Feast of Booths reference in John chapter 7, verse 2 is the color for John 7, 8, 9, and half of chapter 10. Those three and a half chapters are going to take us a couple of months to go through. And so it's probably good for us to get some idea of what the Feast of Booths is since we're going to be alluding to the Feast of Booths, all the way through the midway point of John chapter 10. There is two discourse that revolve around the Feast of Booths. The Light of the World discourse in John chapter 8, and the Good Shepherd discourse in John chapter 10. There is a miracle that is significant that revolves around the Feast of Booths, and that is the healing of the man born blind in John chapter 9. That happens around the Feast of Booths. And then there is all of this conflict. It is heated conflict, it is hostile conflict, between Jesus and the, and the religious leaders of the nation of Israel. All of that conflict revolves around the Feast of Booths. And then there are a couple statements that Jesus made which you are not even going to be able to begin to appreciate unless you understand the Feast of Booths. So today, we're just going to talk about the Feast of Booths. We're going to get a, our minds wrapped around this. I'm going to describe it to you. We're going to talk about what the celebration looked like and how and why it was instituted. Are you ready? 
We're not going to get past the reference to the Feast of Booths. So if you're expecting to get chapter 3 and beyond, it's just the Feast of Booths today. The Jewish Feast of Booths, it was sometimes called the holiday or the feast. It was Israel's, perhaps Israel's greatest feast out of all the feasts that they celebrated. This was the one that everybody looked forward to and anticipated. It was sometimes just called the holiday or the feast. If they talk about the feast, it is the Feast of Booths that they're referring to. Sometimes called Sukkot, S-U-K-K-O-T, Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. And one or two places in the Old Testament, it's referred to as the Feast of Ingathering. The Feast of Ingathering. It was a God-ordained and required feast, and it was one, it actually comes at the end of a list of God-given feasts in the book of Leviticus. It was the third and final feast every year that every Jewish adult male was required to attend. They were required to attend the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which took place after Pentecost, uh, Passover. They were required to attend Pentecost in Jerusalem, and they were required to come up to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths. Those three feasts were required of every Jewish male. So Jesus, in fulfilling the law, was going to go up and celebrate the Feast of Booths in Jerusalem. Turn back to Leviticus chapter 23, and we're going to read together God's giving of the ordinance for the celebration of the Feast of Booths. Keep a bookmarker or a little ribbon or something in John chapter 7, because we'll be back there. But turn to Leviticus 23. And we'll begin reading at verse 33. And it's 33 through the end of the chapter. Again the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth of this seventh month is the Feast of Booths, for seven days to the Lord. On the first day is a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work of any kind. For seven days you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation and present an offering by fire to the Lord. It is an assembly. You shall do no laborious work. These are the appointed times of the Lord which you shall proclaim as holy convocations to present offerings by fire to the Lord, burnt offerings and grain offerings, sacrifices and drink offerings, each day's matter on its own day, besides those of the Sabbaths of the Lord and besides your gifts and beside all your votive and freewill offerings which you give to the Lord. On exactly the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the crops of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord for seven days, with a rest on the first day and a rest on the eighth day. Now on the first day you shall take for yourselves the foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall thus celebrate it as a feast of the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall live in booths for seven days. All the native born in Israel shall live in booths, so that your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Moses declared to the sons of Israel the appointed times of the Lord. That's the Feast of Booths. It was a celebratory feast, a celebration. You'll notice at the beginning of that passage that it was, that the feast was held at the end of the harvest. So after all of the crops of the whole land were gathered in, everything was put in the barns, everything was put in the storehouses, all of the produce of the land had been gathered in. After the harvest, they would gather together in Jerusalem and celebrate. And it was a massive celebration. There was singing and dancing and the waving of these bows. There was shouting and joyful rejoicing. The one rabbi used to say, or the rabbis used to say, that if you had never been to, if you had not seen Jerusalem during the Feast of Booths, you had no idea what rejoicing was. 
Because this was a massive, massive celebration. Every Jew looked forward to this. And you can imagine why. Because the, the harvest had been brought in. All of the crops were harvested. You get to the end of fall. And you know that feeling you have, that joyful feeling. And you get all the garden in. And all the fruit trees are cleaned off. And all the pruning is done. And the garden is rototilled. And all your equipment's put away. And the hoses are wound up. And you can just kind of look forward to winter and relaxing. And you feel like all of this has been brought in. And God has abundantly provided all of this. That was the sense. And then they would gather together in Jerusalem. And for seven days... They rejoiced before the Lord. It was a massive celebration. It took place in the seventh month, which was the month of Tishri. In our calendar, that would be the end of September or the beginning of October, depending on how the years would fall, because the Jewish calendar was different. They only had 360 days, so end of September, the beginning of October was the seventh month. And they would celebrate this for seven days, seven days. And they would begin on a Sabbath, and they were not allowed to do any laborious work on that first day of the feast. And then they would celebrate and rejoice before the Lord with sacrifices and offerings for seven consecutive days. And then that eighth day, it was actually an eight-day celebration, on the eighth day, which was another Sabbath, they would do no laborious work on that day either. So they basically had an entire week from Sabbath to Sabbath where they celebrated the Feast of Booths. And it was a massive celebration. It involved three requirements according to Leviticus, and you may have noticed them. There were three basic requirements. Now, there was a lot more that went on that I'm going to describe. But any Feast of Booth celebration had to have these three elements. First, it had to have the building of temporary shelters. So the Jews would build booths, and they would build them out of these willows and these palm branches, and they would build them out on their rooftops or in in their yard, and then for seven days they would live in these booths. Now, you know how the Jews were? Do you remember how the Jews were with the Sabbath? Remember all of the requirements and the laws that they attached to the Sabbath? We went through that at the beginning of John chapter 5, that onerous, burdensome feeling that they attached to the Sabbath. They did the same thing with the Feast of Booths. And I'm not going to get into all of that, but they had building codes. You know how people in authority love building codes. They had building codes that they would put into place for the Feast of the Booths. It it became just almost an onerous celebration. But the three requirements, they had to build booths, and they had to live in those booths for seven days. Second, they had to offer sacrifices. And Leviticus mentions that. Though Leviticus does not spell out the sacrifices that were to be offered, Numbers 29 does. If you wanted to turn to Numbers 29 and read that later, you can. There are sacrifices that were to be offered, and Numbers 29 spells out the number of sacrifices for each day of the Feast of Booths. And it went something like this. On the first day of the Feast of Booths, on that first Sabbath, they were to offer 13 bulls, 2 rams, and 14 male lambs, one year old without defect, as well as all of their grain and their drink offerings. On the second day, that that was the first day. Now, every consecutive day was one less bull. So the second day was... 12 bulls, 2 rams, 14 lambs. The third day was 11 bulls, 2 rams, 14 lambs. And this went down, the number of bulls went down every day for the seven consecutive days. Then on the final and eighth day of the feast, they would offer one bull, because obviously it's not going to be in seven days, it's not going to go from 13 to 1, but on the eighth day it was totally different number of sacrifices. One bull, one ram, and seven male lambs on the eighth day. And the eighth day, that final day, that Sabbath, was considered the great day of the feast. Right? So you had sacrifices. You had booths. You had sacrifices. Then you had a third requirement, according to Leviticus, and that was that they were to take myrtle branches, palm branches, and willow branches, and they were to cut those, and they were to wave those before the Lord in their celebrations. So when they would gather together for worship, they would wave these branches before the Lord as part of the celebration and the worship. Much like today, we, well, we don't. But people wave their hands, raise their hands before the Lord to celebrate. It was kind of the same thing. You don't do that. I don't know why, but most of you don't do that. 
they would do that with the waving of branches before the Lord to celebrate. And it was sort of their way of symbolizing that they are reminding God of them and God's promises to them, sort of catching God's attention, and it was an act of worship. And they would do this with the palm branches. So whenever they would come into the temple, they would bring those leaves with them, and they would take all three of those type of leaves, and they would bind them together and with a golden thread around them, and so they would have this bundle of bows in one hand, and then when they went to the temple, they would have what is called an ertog in the other hand, which was a citrus fruit. And so the, the branches were a reminder of the booths that they were living in, the temporary shelters that they made out of those bows and those branches and those leaves, and the citrus fruit was a reminder of God's abundant provision in the land flowing with milk and honey. And so they would bring those two reminders, those two symbolic things, into the temple with them every day when they came in to offer the sacrifices and to celebrate before the Lord. Those were the three requirements. Now, there was all kinds of others between Moses and Jesus. There was all kinds of other developments in the celebration of the Feast of Booths. So I'm going to get into those in just a second. And those developments came because later on in Revelation, not Revelation the book, but in God's revelation of his will in the Old Testament, through the prophets and through the Psalms, the writers in the Psalms and the writers of the prophets would oftentimes mention different elements of the Feast of Booths and its symbolism and its significance and its messianic expectation. And so over the course of time, as Isaiah would write and um, uh, Zechariah and the Psalms would be written for and about the Feast of Booths, they would incorporate these different things that God had revealed about this feast into the celebration of the Feast of Booths. So those three requirements, booths that they were to live in, and they were to dwell in those because the booths would remind them of coming out of the land of Israel or out of the land of Egypt into the promised land and how God protected and dwelt with them in those booths. So those three requirements and the booths, the foliage, and the sacrifices. Keep those three things in mind. There were two other very significant things that were attached to it. We're going to get to that in just a second. But those are the three requirements. The Feast of Booths had a past, a present, and a future significance. Now I'm going to cover each the past the present, and the future significance of the Feast of Booths. The past significance of the Feast of Booths was they would build these shelters and they would live in them for seven days. And this would remind the people, we came out of Egypt and we had nothing. And we dwelt in the wilderness in booths, in temporary shelters, in tents. And we did this for 40 years. And during all of those 40 years, God was faithful. God kept his word. God provided for us. God protected us. God delivered us from our enemies. God was round about us, and most importantly, in the wilderness, God dwelt with us in the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke. Those booths were to the Israelites a reminder of the presence and the power and the protection and the preservation of God for his people. Because in the wilderness, they would dwell in their tents and they would see the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of smoke by day. And wherever that pillar of fire and that pillar of smoke moved to, that's where the people moved their booths to. Wherever God was, that's where his people moved to, or the presence and glory of God. So it was a reminder to them of God's protection, his deliverance, his provision, and his uh, presence with them in that Shekinah glory, that cloud and that fire. That was the past significance. The Feast of Booths also had a past significance in that it looked back to the previous year of harvest. Remember, it was after the harvest was brought in that they got together and they celebrated because they would be looking back not just to God's deliverance from Egypt, but they would be looking back to the previous year. With the abundance of God's provision from the land, all of the fruit and all of the bounty brought in and harvested, they would be looking at that and saying, isn't God faithful? Just like he was back in the wilderness, God is faithful. He has provided all of this for us. And so they would celebrate that and remember God's faithful provision the year before, and they would be praying for God's faithful provision in the coming year and remembering the past significance of the children of Israel dwelling in the wilderness during those 40 years of wandering. 
That was the past symbolism or the past significance of it. And by the way, I think that John, in John's Gospel, has in mind a reference to the Feast of Booths and the symbolism there when he says back in chapter 1 that that eternal word which was with God and was God came and dwelt, and that's the word for tabernacle or booth, he pitched his tent among us. And we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John is alluding there to the fact that the Shekinah glory of God came and dwelt in Jesus Christ. He tabernacled among us. You want to know what the presence of God looked like? You could see it in Christ. He was there with us. He pitched his temporary temp, uh, t- uh, tabernacle. He pitched a temporary twelfth uh, tent. And he dwelt among us. That was the glory of God. And we beheld that glory, John says, as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So that's John's allusion to the Feast of Booths, even as far back as John chapter 1. Because John back in chapter 1 is already telling us God did dwell with his people. He did come to his people in the person of Christ. That's the past significance. Second, there is a present significance. And this is given in the sacrifices, or this is alluded to in the sacrifices. Every day, sacrifices in the temple. And the people would gather, they would bring their bows and their citrus fruit into the temple, and they would sacrifice there, the animals on the altar. And that sacrifice, the number of them given in Numbers chapter 29, that sacrifice had a, had a, was a constant reminder of their sin and the need for blood to atone for that sin. That God would forgive His people based not upon their righteousness, but upon the blood sacrifice and shed blood of another innocent victim in their place. And so they would shed that blood. And all of that shedding of blood and all of that sacrifice is a reminder to them of the saving power of God and what was needed to save them. And while those sacrifices are going on, they were chanting and singing the Psalms, Psalm 113, Psalm 114, Psalm 115, Psalm 116, Psalm 117, and Psalm 118. Those were, that was the worship hymnal or the worship songs for the Feast of Tabernacles. And they would sing those songs and every day in the temple they would sing what we read at the beginning, Psalm 118. And that Psalm concludes with that prayer, we beseech thee, O Lord, save us. You imagine the temple filled with people singing that and the sacrifice in the middle of that, everybody looking at the sacrifice with all of the blood and praying out, Lord, save us. We beseech Thee, send prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Every day they would do that for seven days, all of those sacrifices being offered. And they were calling out to God for deliverance and for salvation and for forgiveness and for God to send the one who would come in the name of the Lord. That's the messianic expectation. That brings us to the future significance of the Feast of Booths. So there was a past significance, a present significance, and then there was a future significance. And here's the future significance. Amos chapter 9 makes mention of the booth of David which was broken down, and that God would someday restore the booth. And there's reference to the Feast of Booths, the booth of David. And by that, they meant not the booth that David built, but they meant the Davidic line, the Davidic kingdom, the Davidic throne, the Davidic, the Davidic empire, as it were. And they were looking forward to David's greater son, the Messiah. And in the days of Amos, that Davidic line had been basically almost washed entirely out. It was so corrupt that the, the entire nation was divided. Nothing was like it was in the days of David. But all the prophets looked forward to this restitution of the Davidic line and the Davidic kingdom and the Davidic rule. That's what they were anticipating, was that greater son of David, the Messiah, will come. And he will restore the booth of David. And he will raise us up and he will gather together all of the nations under him. And all of the nations will gather together and will worship our God and will worship our Messiah. And Jerusalem and the temple and our Messiah will be the center of worship for the entire world. That was the expectation. 
And the prophets often wondered, how is this going to take place? And the people wondered, how can this take place? Our kingdom has deteriorated to the point where there's no way we can explain how this could ever happen. That's why Isaiah said, it is the zeal of the Lord that will accomplish this. Isaiah chapter 9. It's God's passion, it's God's power that will accomplish this restitution. Isaiah chapter 4 speaks of a day when God would wipe away all of the iniquity of the land of Jerusalem and the land of Israel. And then Isaiah writes this, and this is prophetic, dealing with the... You can hear, hear, you can hear here the allusion to the Feast of Booths. Isaiah 4, verses 4 through 6. The Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day, even smoke, and the brightness of a flaming fire by night. What's that allusion to? That's your kind of glory, right? Remember the old, remember the coming out of the land of Egypt with the fire and the cloud? Isaiah is saying there is coming a day when the God is going to do this again. The Shekinah glory of God will dwell among his people again someday. Isaiah 4. There will be a shelter to give shade from the heat by day and a refuge and protection from the storm in the rain. Reference to booths and shelters. So it was references like that in the prophets that they looked forward to and they said there's, there's symbolism here to the Feast of Booths and what we were anticipating. In the book of Zechariah chapter 14, Zechariah mentions a time, and listen to this, a time, and this has never been fulfilled, this has never happened yet, a time when the Feast of Booths will again be celebrated in Jerusalem, and listen, all of the nations will gather together to Jerusalem, and there will be representatives from every nation in Jerusalem celebrating the Feast of Booths when the Messiah is there, and they will gather together to celebrate that Jewish feast. And Zechariah says, any nation that does not come up will experience a drought. That will be the judgment of God upon any nation that does not come up in the days of the Messiah to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Zechariah 14. Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. If the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. So attendance at the feast will be optional, but if the nation does not go up to celebrate it, they get a drought. That's the punishment of the curse upon the Lord. That's going to happen someday. So there was this messianic expectation among the Jews that there would come a day when the Messiah would come to Jerusalem and all of the nations would be converted and would gather there to worship their God in the Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the Shekinah glory would be there again in Jerusalem, and they would celebrate the Feast of Booths. So every celebration of the Feast of Booths had those three elements. They were looking back at what God did. They were crying out in the present for God to save them and to send the Messiah. And they were looking forward to, with great anticipation and expectation, the coming of the Messiah and that day when the Shekinah glory would again dwell in Jerusalem with his people. And all of the nations would be converted and to gather together to worship that Messiah. And there would be peace and prosperity. And that cry in Psalm 118, O Lord, send us prosperity was that prayer for the Messiah to come and to bring that prosperity and to bring that peace and to deliver his people and to dwell with his people. That was the hope. That was the expectation. That's what the Feast of Tabernacles looked back to and looked forward to. Everybody follow me so far? So what did all of this then look like? Oh, by the way, there was another future element to the Feast of Booths. I almost forgot this. I gave you the, the 13 rams, then the 12 rams, no, uh, bulls. 13 bulls, 12 bulls, 11 bulls, 10 bulls, 9 bulls, 8 bulls, and 7 bulls. You add all those together, it comes up to 70. Now, there's a little bit of numerology here, and I don't, I don't buy into numerology. I'll say that right up front. Those 70 offerings, those 70 bulls the Jews believed were symbolic of the offerings and sacrifices that would be given for all of the nations of the world. And they said there were 70 nations. 
70 nations of the world, one bull for each nation. And whether they're right or wrong, we don't know. But even the number of offerings given by the bulls was symbolic to the Jews of the fact that the Messiah would come and by him and through him, blessing would come to all of the Gentile nations as all of them would be brought under, atoned for, forgiven, and would believe in the Messiah because of what the Messiah would do. And then they would receive, through their Messiah, all of the blessings promised to the land of Israel. That was their messianic hope and expectation. Now, there were certain man-made elements of the Feast of Booths. I mentioned there were three required elements. There were a couple of man-made elements. These were things that became attached to it. Now, you know how it is with us when we celebrate something that there are certain traditions that sort of become part of what we celebrate, right? And they mean something to us. Like, maybe your family has something that you celebrate, and over the course of time, they have these different traditions that have kind of been added to it, and it's developed, and it's just sort of unique for your family. With the nation of the Jews, they had the same thing. Looking at the prophets and the Psalms and all of the expectation, they had certain ceremonies that had become attached to the the celebration of the Feast of Booths that were significant to them. They were cultural things. Not required, not sinful, but just part of the celebration. And in the days of Jesus, there were two primary features, man-made features attached to the Feast of Booths. Here they were. Number one was a water offering or a water libation, a water offering. And here's how it would work. Every day for those seven days or those eight days, a designated priest, a godly man, would go to the Pool of Siloam. Does that sound familiar, the Pool of Siloam? It had not only historical but also prophetic significance. He would go to the Pool of Siloam and he would draw a jug of water. Now, the Pool of Siloam was chosen because the Pool of Siloam was where the water was drawn to anoint the kings who would come from the house of David. So the pool had historical significance. And that water was used to anoint the king's sons for the kingship. And every anointing of a king was an anticipation of that coming greater king. So there was a a future sort of prophetic anticipation, even in the drawing of the water from the pool of Siloam. It was believed by the Jews, and this is true because Joel 2 speaks of it, that when the Messiah would come and all the nations would be gathered, the Messiah would pour out upon all people, all who believe upon him, the Holy Spirit. And so the water from the pool of Siloam was symbolic, not only of the anointing of the king, but also the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So here's how it worked. A priest would go to the pool of Siloam, draw a jug of water, and every day on those sacrifices he would come into the temple through the water gate, and it would be timed perfectly so that another priest would come in through another gate, and he would be carrying a jug of wine. The wine was symbolic of the abundance of the produce of the land, right? And the joy of the celebration, the wine and the water. And those two priests would meet at the altar during the singing of those songs, and they would pour their water offerings over top of the altar and the sacrifice which was arranged on the altar. That was the water offering or the water libation. So here's how this would look. Let's pull it all together now. All of the information we have about the Feast of Booths, here's how it would look. On that great and final day, oh, by the way, turn back to John 7 because this is significant. John 7 mentions this. On the great and final day of the Feast of Booths, verse 37, John mentions, now on the last day, the great day of the feast. So remember, this is the greatest feast for the nation of Israel, for the Jews. There was one day which was the greatest day of all of them. This day was called the Great Hosanna, or the Day of Hosanna. And it was the greatest because this is where the whole celebration culminated. And here's what it would look like. On that eighth and final day, you can imagine early in the morning, everybody from around the city of Jerusalem streaming into the temple, and they're carrying their bows in their one hand and their citrus fruit in the other hand. 
And they gather in there by the thousands. The women are not allowed inside the, the center of the temple. The women were outside in the court of the Gentiles, in the court of the women. They were outside. But all the males would gather in there, and everybody else would gather around the top of the walls and anywhere they could see what was going on. And in the middle of that temple courtyard would be the altar, and the sacrifice would be arranged on the altar. And on that final day, all of those boughs, the, uh, the, the myrtle uh, uh, branches, the palm branches, and the willow branches would be arranged around and on top of that altar, reminding them of the temples and the and the provision and protection and presence of God. And they would gather there and they would begin their celebration. The trumpets would blast and the instruments would play. And you can imagine thousands of people waving their branches and singing out all of those psalms, Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. And this would all culminate with Psalm 118. When at the right time, at the appointed time, at the perfect time, the priest would bring the water from the pool of Siloam in through the water gate, and another priest would come in through a different gate with the wine, and they would meet at the altar. And all of the people would sing together, The words of Psalm 118, We beseech you, O Lord, to save us. Save us, we pray. Bring us prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's the end of the psalm. And they would finish up that psalm, and as they sang for God to save them, looking back to what God had done, anticipating God's salvation, looking forward to the Messiah, they would pour out the water, which represented the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and the anointing of the King, and they would pour out the wine, which represented God's abundant provision for them, on that sacrifice, which represented God's sacrifice for their sin and the atonement and forgiveness, praying out that God would save them. And as all of that came to its culmination, the wine and the water was poured out in the sacrifice, the trumpets would blow their last, the people would sing their last, and the whole ceremony would end as a hush would fall over the crowd. And the people would be waving their branches, and that would stop, and there would be a time at the end of that when it was quiet, and the whole gathering was quiet. It is at that moment that most people believe Jesus stood up in the temple and cried out in verse 38, If you are thirsty, come to me. And as the Scripture said, out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Can you imagine that? You have just poured out the anointing for the king. Your messianic fervor it is at fever pitch. And you have prayed for God to send a deliverer. And when that whole service comes to an end, the one who is the Shekinah glory of God in the flesh stood up and said, If you are thirsty, come to me, and out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And John says in verse 39, he spoke of the Spirit. Just in case we didn't get the symbolism of the Feast of Booths, John explains it. He was speaking of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. What did the people do? Can you imagine that? Your whole service has been interrupted and your messianic expectation and longing is at its highest point of the whole calendar year. And Jesus has just stood up and said this in the hearing of all the people. What would you do? I'd be looking. Who is this man who said this? That is why, look at verse 40. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. The others were saying, this is the Christ. Some people got it, right? They put two and two together. These are the people who saw his signs. They believe on him. They've been debating him the whole chapter, who he is, where he comes from, what is his significance. Nobody could do more signs than this. Maybe he is the Christ. Maybe he's not. No, he's the Messiah. No, he's a deceiver. And then on the great and final day of the feast, Jesus stood up and said that. And some people said, he's it. He's the Messiah. He's the prophet. And others said, no, no, he comes from Galilee. prophet can't come from Galilee. So there was still this conflict over who Jesus was and what he did. That's the water libation. 
And when you understand the water offering, what was going on in that final day of the temple, all of a sudden the words of Jesus about the Spirit and believing on Him and living water takes on a whole new meaning, doesn't it? There's another thing that John says in, or Jesus says in John chapter 8, which takes on a whole new meaning when you understand the second man-made element of the celebration of the Feast of Booths, and that was the, the great lighting ceremony. They would have in the temple these, these massive candelabra-type things that stuck up, stuck up 75 feet in the air. And according to one source, they would hire or have little boys climb a ladder to go light these things, 75 feet up in the temple, these massive torches. And at night, the people would gather for a celebration in the evening when it was starting to get dark, and everybody would bring their torches into the temple. And they would have all of these lights around the temple. And so you can imagine hundreds of people in the temple courtyard surrounding the temple, holding their torches, and these massive torches in the temple that they would light. And they would light up the temple on top of the mountain so that it would basically light up not only the whole temple courtyard, but everything surrounding the temple. It was a massive light display. And this to the Jews symbolized the day that the Messiah would come and their temple and their city and their nation would be a light to the world. A light to the entire world. The Shekinah glory will someday again come to the temple. That was they wanted. And so they would, they would picture that by lighting up the temple. And you can imagine the light reflecting off of the marble and the gold and the silver and everything polished to a T in the temple courtyard. It is in the midst of that ceremony that Jesus stands up and says, I am the light of the world. Believe upon me and you will not walk in the darkness but have the light of life. That's John 8, verse 12. Significance to the Feast of Booths. That's why so much of John 7, 8, 9, and half of chapter 10 have to do with this celebration. So you got the Feast of Booths in your head, what it looks like, what its significance is. There's more significance, by the way, in chapter 9 and 10. We'll say that for later. Let's answer this question. What then does the Feast of Booths tell me? How do I apply this to my life? What is, what is the significance of this? I'm not a Jew. I haven't celebrated the Feast of Booths. I'm not celebrating the Feast of Booths. I don't ever plan on celebrating the Feast of Booths. I don't build temporary shelters, and this has no significance to me. What does all of this tell me about God? The Feast of Booths tells us the same thing about God that the, all of the feasts and the sacrifices tell us about God, and this is primarily this. God is a God who keeps His promises. He keeps His promises. He was faithful to His people in the wilderness. He abided with them. He promised them there is coming a day when I will dwell with you and you will dwell with me. He promised to forgive them because of the sacrifices if they offered that in faith. And he promised that one day he would return. He would come. There would come one sent in the name of the Lord. The Shekinah glory of God of the Old Testament, that same pillar of fire, would come and dwell in Jerusalem. That was God's promise. God keeps his promises. He always keeps his promises. He is faithful to his word. He is faithful to his people. And friends, there is coming a day when that Shekinah glory of God in the flesh will return for his people. That's his promise to us. And you and I can count on that. We can believe that. We can rest on it. We know it is certain because God is faithful. Great is his faithfulness. He is faithful to his word. He is faithful to his nature. He is faithful to his people. God is a God who keeps his promises. Everything about the Feast of Booths was a reminder of God's promises and that God would keep his promises. And the Jews understood that. And you and I can know the same thing. God is a God who keeps his promises. The Shekinah glory did return to the temple, didn't he? In human flesh. And he cried out, if you're thirsty, I have water. And he cried out, I'm the light of the world. Come to me and believe. You will never thirst. You will never hunger again. There was a day when the Shekinah glory veiled in human flesh the Godhead we saw in the temple of God offering salvation to his people because God fulfills his promises. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are grateful for all that you have given to us in Scripture. 
And it is there for our discovery and for our enjoyment. And we thank you that in digging down deep, we can anticipate and appreciate these things. Thank you that uh, you are a God who keeps your promises and your word. And we thank you again that we can look forward with great expectation to that day when we will dwell with you physically, personally, and we will be your people and you will be our God. We thank you that even now, because of what you have done in Christ and by the person of your Spirit and giving us that seal of the Spirit, that we can look forward to and we know there's coming a day when you will fulfill all that you have given to your people and all that you have promised to your people. It is with great anticipation and expectation and confidence that we can rest in these things because you have vouchsafed your very name to it. Thank you that the glory of God did come in the person of Christ and atone for our sins and purchase our salvation at such great cost. And we thank you that you have brought it to us in the grace of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and in the power of your Spirit. We thank you for these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.